Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to talk about the number one science story around the world today, and that is a black hole has been for the first time in history photographed at the center of our own backyard, the Milky Way galaxy. So what is a black hole? How do we detect it? And what does it mean to find a gigantic object that weighs four million times the mass of our sun in the constellation Sagittarius, in our own Milky Way galaxy? Are they dangerous? What happens if you fall into one? Are they really a gateway to another universe? These are some of the things we'll talk about in today's exploration. And then speaking about outer space, today we'll also talk about flying saucers. After a 50-year gap, the United States Congress once again is holding hearings on UFOs and UAPs. What are they? Are they a danger to national security? Are they a mirage? Uh, something that goes away as soon as you blink? Or are they really visitations from another world? So we'll say a few things about UAPs, UFOs, and what the United States Congress may or may not reveal. Well, let's just jump right into some of the big stories of the past week in science. The big story today is that for the second time in history, scientists have been able to photograph in detail a black hole. This time, it's right in our own neighborhood. It's only a hop, skip, and a jump away, 26,000 light years, and it lurks at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. Now, by rights, every night, you should see a fireball rising in the night sky. That's the galactic nucleus. That's the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And it should actually be brighter than the moon. It should be the brightest object in the night sky. But instead, what do you see? Nothing. Dust clouds. Dust clouds shroud the center of the Milky Way galaxy. But if you could see through the clouds, what would you see in the direction of Sagittarius and Scorpio? You would see a black hole. That's right. That's the home of our black hole at the very center of the Milky Way galaxy. And it's been photographed for the first time in history. Now you may say to yourself, well, black holes are invisible, aren't they? So how can you photograph something that's invisible? Well, the photograph that's been blasted around the world is not actually the photograph of the black hole itself. That's basically the plasma radiation that circulates around the black hole. And at the very center, you see this black spot However, that black spot is also not the black hole. That's the event horizon at the very center, at the very center of the black dot. That's where you have the black hole itself. Well, let's say a few things about where black holes come from and how they were first discovered. And what does it mean to have a black hole right in your own backyard? Well, first of all, it all begins in the 1700s. People then were talking about Newton's theory of gravity, which was a sensation. All of a sudden, you didn't have to talk about angels and demons in outer space. You could talk about forces, forces that you could calculate. And John Mitchell, 
asked himself a fateful question. He said, what happens if you have a star that is so massive that even light cannot escape? Well, that was the 1700s. Back then, we didn't know what the speed of light was. We didn't know how massive stars were. In fact, we didn't know anything about the heavens except some of the parameters within our solar system. But he said there should be dark stars, stars that are so large that even gravity cannot escape their gravitational pull. For example, the Earth has a gravitational pull of 25,000 miles per hour. If you can go faster than 25,000 miles per hour, you can leap to the moon. If, on the other hand, you could go faster than the speed of light, you could leap right into the universe itself and then perhaps turn around because gravity will then finally whip you around before you leave the gravitational pull of the black hole. But back then, they didn't know what the speed of light was. And so it was an academic exercise. Is it possible that a star could be so massive that it becomes dark? Well, that went on for several hundred years until 1915. In 1915, Albert Einstein comes out with his theory of gravity. And then one year after that, just one year after the publication of Einstein's famous paper on general relativity, another physicist, a German physicist by the name of Karl Schwarzschild, was on the Russian front. He was fighting for Germany in the military, but he was, in fact, a physicist. And he did a calculation. Amazing, a calculation in the middle of a shooting war. He calculated that if a star were to be massive enough, then as John Mitchell had predicted centuries ago, light could not escape. And how would it have to be? It would have to be so massive that the mass of the star is concentrated into a sphere with the radius called the Schwarzschild radius. So the Schwarzschild radius is the cutoff. It is the size you have to be so that if you could squeeze matter into the event horizon or the Schwarzschild radius, light itself cannot escape. Well, if you do the calculation, you find that the sun, our sun, would have to be concentrated into a tiny mass about four miles in diameter. Well, that's not going to happen, right? Four miles in diameter, squeezing our sun down to that small level. So the idea of a black hole never really got off the ground in 1916. However, the solution, the mathematical solution that Schwarzschild found was incredible. It was the first exact solution of Einstein's equations, and it allowed him to calculate the defection of starlight as it goes around the sun. And that allowed scientists to then verify the correctness of Einstein's theory of gravity, for which he won a Nobel Prize. Actually, he got the Nobel Prize for the photoelectric effect because the Nobel Prize committee couldn't understand what relativity was all about. Well, this went on for several decades, but people began to worry. The Schwarzschild radius for large distances was very useful in order to calculate the bending of starlight throughout the universe. That's the thing that made Einstein famous, the fact that light itself could be bent under gravity. But there was this nagging doubt. What is this Schwarzschild radius? A radius <clears throat> that is so small that if you could compress a star down to the Schwarzschild radius, it would become a black hole. It was a nagging mystery. So Einstein himself thought that he could put a stop to all this speculation. 
So Einstein wrote a paper to settle the question once and for all of what happens if you could squeeze a star down to the event horizon or the Schwarzschild radius. What happens then? Well, he did the calculation. If you have a swirling ball of gas, he said, and the swirling ball of gas gradually begins to compress, then he showed mathematically it could never, ever be squeezed down below the Schwarzschild radius. So this mythical black hole could never form. It was a solution of Einstein's equations, but it was impractical because it could never be formed. But then J. Robert Oppenheimer comes along, a young American theoretical physicist, and he says, no, Einstein missed something. And that is the evolution of stars. Stars do not collapse because they're swirling balls of gas. No, stars can implode by gravity. Think of a supernova. You have the sudden implosion of this gigantic ball of hydrogen gas to create the explosion of a supernova. And then Oppenheimer with his student Snyder calculated that yes, you could in fact squeeze a star down to the event horizon, in which case it would collapse down to a black hole. Well, the war clouds were starting at that point. Oppenheimer was drafted to head the atomic bomb project, but he remembered the calculation that if you could squeeze gas, you could then create a nuclear explosion. In fact, he used that idea for the Nagasaki bomb. So the dynamics of the formation of a black hole were actually critical to create an atomic bomb, the Nagasaki bomb. Just as Oppenheimer predicted, if you could squeeze, in this case, plutonium down to a very small radius, it will detonate with the force of an atomic bomb. So after Oppenheimer's calculation, people began to realize, well, maybe it's true. Maybe you can, in fact, squeeze a star down to this mythical radius called the Schwarzschild radius. But what happens if you fall into a black hole? All hell breaks off. First of all, as you get closer to a black hole, you get squeezed like a spaghetti strand. Your feet accelerate faster to the black hole than your head, and so your body turns into spaghetti. That's called, called spaghettification as you fall through the event horizon. Also, as you get closer to the event horizon, time slows down. So if you're on the Earth, for example, with a telescope, watching somebody fall into a black hole, they would fall into a black hole in slow motion. In fact, they would basically stop as they entered into the event horizon. Time itself stops as seen from an outside observer with a telescope watching you fall into a black hole. Now, if you are the person falling into a black hole, you have your own clock, not the clock of somebody on the Earth. For you falling into a black hole, you fall almost instantly through the event horizon and then get crushed to death. Well, so this magic radius, this magic Schwarzschild radius, was the bugaboo of physicists for decades. It was too fantastic, too incredible to be true until now. Now, just a few years ago, scientists were able to lash together about five radio telescopes to create a composite image, an image of a black hole at the center of a galaxy, M67. And that black hole weighs billions of times the mass of our sun. In other words, the black hole at the center of M87 
weighs a thousand times more than the black hole at the center of our galaxy. In fact, astronomers call the black hole at the center of our galaxy a gentle giant. It's not really doing much. It's not very big. It's a moderately sized black hole weighing about four million times the mass of our sun. So then the question is, how were we able to photograph this mythical animal, this black hole? Well, as I mentioned, one radio telescope is not powerful enough to photograph a black hole. You have to lash together five to eight radio telescopes to get a composite image. In fact, by lashing together so many radio telescopes, five to eight radio telescopes, you could actually detect an orange on the moon from the Earth. Think of that. A telescope so powerful, you can actually detect an orange on the moon from the planet Earth. That's what it took to get that image that has been splashed over all the front pages of the world today, a picture of a black hole at the very center of the Milky Way galaxy. Well, as I mentioned, the picture is actually not of a black hole at all. It's of the accretion disk, that is, the ball of plasma and gas that circulates around the event horizon. And the event horizon is a ball. It also is not the black hole. It is a ball that surrounds the black hole. So then the question is, what does the black hole actually look like? Well, we don't know. At first, we thought it was a simple dot, that the gravitational field was so intense that, that at the center of the event horizon, there would be a dot. And that dot is called the singularity of infinite gravity. Well, that's nonsense. There's no such thing as infinite gravity. Plus, these black holes are not stationary. They spin. They spin very rapidly. And in 1963, a physicist was able to get another exact solution of Einstein's equations for a spinning black hole, which is much more realistic than the black hole found by Carl Schwarzschild back in 1916. So the black hole of 1963 was a spinning black hole, and it collapsed not to a dot, it collapsed into a ring, a ring of neutrons circulating at very high velocities. Centrifugal force prevented the ring from collapsing, and that ring was a gateway. If you fell through the ring, there was a certain chance that you would not be crushed to death at all, that you would fall right through to another universe. In fact, that ring is a gateway. Think of the looking glass of Alice. The rim, the rim of the looking glass is the black hole. And when you stick your hand through the looking glass, your, your hand winds up on the other side, perhaps, of the universe. So in other words, this is what mathematicians call a multiply connected space. Two spaces stuck together with a looking glass. Now, who wrote Alice in Wonderland? It was a mathematician. It wasn't Lewis Carroll. That was his pseudonym. He was actually a professor of mathematics at Oxford University. And of course, he couldn't use his own name to write a children's book. So he had to create a fake name, Lewis Carroll. He was actually Charles Dodson. Charles Dodson, a professional professor of mathematics. And of course, he was aware of what mathematicians call multiply connected spaces. Take two sheets of paper 
and stick them together at one point. And take a pencil and drive a pencil right through that point. So you have two universes stuck together. You could spend all your life as an ant on one sheet of paper wandering around, never knowing that if you fall through the gateway, you can walk into a parallel universe. In fact, if you fell through it a second time, you can wind up on a second parallel universe. In fact, if you look at the Schwarzschild solution very carefully mathematically on a computer, you can go through the wormhole an infinite number of times, winding up on different universes each time. So it's like being in an apartment building with an elevator. The elevator connects you to all the different floors of this parallel universe. You hit the button and you rise up, you leave one universe and enter another universe. Well, then of course, the big question is, is this science fiction or is this real? The short answer is, we don't know. We do, we do know that this is an exact solution of Einstein's equations. And Einstein's equations themselves have been verified over and over again by looking at radiation from the Big Bang, looking at black holes, and looking at neutron stars. However, at the very center of the black hole, Einstein's equations break down. That's right. Einstein's equations work throughout the universe except at two places. The two most interesting places, that's where Einstein's equations break down. One is the center of a black hole, and the other one is the beginning of the universe. So one theory says that if you fall through the black hole, you wind up on a parallel universe. Well, that's one theory. But how stable is it? Even in Star Trek, when they have black holes and they have wormholes, the big question for the Enterprise is, if you fell into one, how stable are they? Will it explode? Will it disintegrate as soon as you enter? At that point, Einstein's equations simply say, we don't know. We need a higher theory, a theory of the quantum that can calculate quantum corrections to Einstein's theory. And at the present time, the only theory which can do this is called string theory, which is actually what I do for a living. But string theory, unfortunately, is not yet developed mathematically to solve the riddle of the question, what happens if you fall through a black hole? Well, moving on, let's talk about something that happened 50 years ago, but is now dominating the news. And that is the United States Congress, after a 50-year gap, is now investigating flying saucers. That's right. It's been 50 years since we had um, Project Blue Book. And now the United States Congress is once again curious about UAPs or UFOs. And we have new evidence now that supports the fact that there's more than meets the eye after a 50-year gap. The United States military has pretty much admitted now that, quote, they're not ours. For many decades, you could always perhaps say that these flying saucers were secret military weapons like the stealth bomber or perhaps a new jet fighter plane of some sort. But the United States military has pretty much said that, nope, they're, they're not ours. And then the next question is, whose are they? Well, what differentiates the hearings today from the hearings 50 years ago? If you look at Project Blue Book, you realize that a lot of the investigations there were done about individuals saying they saw something. Now, maybe they did. I'm not saying that they're liars. Maybe they did say something. 
Or, on the other hand, maybe they didn't. These are basically eyewitness accounts. But you see, that's not the gold standard. The gold standard for observation is multiple sightings by multiple modes. In other words, not just one person saying, look, Martha, look up there, I see something, but several people simultaneously saying, yes, we see something. And you look at the object, not just with your eyes, but with radar, with infrared sensors, with photometry. You look at the evidence with multiple sightings, with multiple modes. That's the difference between what's happening now and what happened 50 years ago. We're just not talking about hearsay anymore. Now, no one's saying that it was a hoax. No one was saying that it's all fabrication. Maybe these, these people really did see something. But then you have to ask the question, did they see a weather balloon? Maybe it was a meteor or comet. Maybe it was a weather anomaly. Maybe it was the planet Venus or Mars. Maybe it was swamp gas. Maybe it was a radar echo. It could be one of many things. So then the question is, well, what are they? Are they ours or not? Well, what's motivating the congressional hearings is the question of national security. And that is, if they're not ours, then whose are they? And do they pose a threat to national security? So then this is more than just a case of you saw something at night. It's a question of, well, are they potentially dangerous? And let's take a look at the technology of today. There is something called a hypersonic drone or hypersonic glide vehicles. They can execute tremendous velocities and they maneuver. So what have we here now after a 50-year gap? We have military sightings by Navy pilots of strange objects caught on videotape for the first time being released to the American people and the people of the world. 144 sightings, only one of which can be explained in by the normal channels. So who has the capability of doing this? These objects we can now track using videotapes. We can track them moving between Mach 5 and Mach 20. That is five times to 20 times the speed of sound. And they maneuver. They zigzag. In fact, they zigzag so much you can calculate the centrifugal forces inside the spaceship, if they are a spaceship, and there are hundreds of g-forces. So any human inside one of these crafts would be crushed to death. So in other words, these are probably drones of some sort. But can hypersonic drones duplicate these feats? First of all, it turns out that these, these sightings, some of them were done underwater. So here we have a flying saucer of some sort roving in the sky and then dipping into the water. We can't do that. And the manipulations are greater than the manipulations that we can execute with our hypersonic drones. So in other words, the military is in a bind. The military is designed to win wars not lose wars. We don't pay the generals to lose wars. But to win wars, you have to know what the enemy has. And at this point, we don't even know if they're enemies at all. We don't know if they're optical illusions, or we don't know whether they are real. But we have a gold standard. Multiple sightings by multiple modes. When you go through some of these earlier reports and studies, 
you find just a handful, a handful of incidences which are really hard to debunk. So of the 95% of the sightings that can be proven to be um, swamp gas or weather anomalies, there's just a few that defy comprehension. One of them is the JAL sighting that took place in the mid-1980s uh, over Alaska. There was a Japan Airlines flight with three pilots, seasoned pilots, traveling over Alaska, and then they saw something. In fact, there were two flying saucers that were riding nose-to-nose, practically, with the JAL, and then a third one was then later sighted. And how did they make the sightings? First, they made the sightings visually, and not one pilot, but three pilots, and it was tracked by radar. So in other words, we have multiple sightings by multiple modes here. But unfortunately, what happened afterwards? It's a sad story. What happened afterwards is these pilots were given a desk job afterwards. In other words, they were demoted. Bad publicity. Who wants to ride on an airplane uh, airlines knowing that some of the crew think they see flying saucers up there? Would you want to ride in such an airplane? It's bad business. In fact, I once talked to a pilot at an airport that, uh, that I was traveling at. He recognized who I was. We got into a chat. And then he said that uh, he's a pilot with many, many hours of experience. And he's seen these things. He has seen these flying saucers or whatever they are, but he doesn't tell anyone. Why? Well, you don't want to get fired, do you? You don't want people to think you're nuts. You don't want people to snicker behind your back and gossip about you. So what does he do? He keeps his mouth shut. So in other words, let's hope. Let's hope that the United States Navy and the United States Air Force have pilots who are willing to come forward and document some of these things so they don't get snickered at, they don't get laughed at, they're taken seriously. Because, well, it is a question of national security, of course, but it's also a scientific question. If, and this is a huge if, if these sightings are real, this could be one of the greatest breakthroughs in the history of science. I mean, think about it for a moment. When was the last time in human history that we met another intelligent civilization perhaps in our own backyard. And of course, this is something that Hollywood has explored at length, but it's something that we should take seriously. I mean, think about it. There are 100 billion stars in our own Milky Way galaxy, and there are 100 billion galaxies that could be seen by the Hubble Space Telescope. That means there are 10,000 billion billion stars out there. And how many of them have planets? We think on average, all of them. So how many planets are there that can be actually attracted by the Hubble Space Telescope? Well, in principle, we're talking about numbers in the neighborhood of billions upon billions. Think about that the next time someone says they saw something in the sky. Well, that concludes the first part of exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, and if you want to know more about exploration, go to my website, 
mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. On Facebook, I have 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. My latest bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Stay tuned now for the second half of Exploration, where we bring on one of the world's experts on black hole science, Dr. Fulvia Melia from Arizona, talking about black holes, the history, what they are, and the mystery behind their origin. Stay tuned for the second part of Exploration. to Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. In the second half of Exploration, we're going to bring on our special guest today, Professor Fulvia Melia of the University of Arizona, and he's one of the world's leading authorities on black holes. So that's what we're going to talk about today, perhaps the most mysterious object in the entire universe. And this interview was pre-recorded before the announcement that there is a black hole lurking at the center of the Milky Way galaxy that was finally photographed by lashing together eight radio telescopes. The collective light and radiation from eight telescopes was sufficient to give us the first photograph lurking in the night sky. And if you want to see the general area where that black hole is, go out tonight. Look in the direction of Sagittarius bordering on Scorpio, and right there is the galactic center, the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And as I mentioned, by rice, it should be a fireball, a gigantic fireball that rivals the moon in intensity. But instead, what do you see? Nothing. Because we are in the disk of the Milky Way galaxy, which is quite dusty. In fact, that's where we came from. We came from the galactic dust in the Milky Way galaxy. And really briefly, what is a black hole? Well, every object has an escape velocity. The escape velocity of the Earth, for example, is 25,000 miles per hour. If you could reach that speed, you could leap to the moon and leave the gravitational field of the Earth. So the bigger the star, the larger you have to attain an escape velocity. So for a black hole, the escape velocity is the speed of light. So you do the math. The speed of light is 186,282 miles per second. You use Newton's laws of gravity to calculate how big the star should be so that the speed of light is the um, escape velocity. So for example, the event horizon for the sun is two miles. If you can squeeze the sun down to a radius of two miles, it will become a black hole. But it will not become a black hole in reality, only on paper, because the mass of the sun simply cannot be compressed down to two miles. It takes a big star, 10 to 50 times perhaps, the mass of the sun to be squeezed down to the point 
where it can become a black hole. Well, anyway, let's bring on our special guest today, Professor Fulvia Melia, Professor of Astronomy at the University of Arizona, one of the world's leading authorities on black holes. And now I'd like to introduce our special guest for today. We're very delighted to have with us Dr. Fulvia Melia. He is the chairman of the physics department at the University of Arizona at Tucson, one of the centers of black hole physics. And he's the author of a new book called The Edge of Infinity about black holes. So let's now get a few definitions off the ground before we head right into the center of a black hole. First of all, what is a black hole? Well, a black hole is an object whose escape velocity is the speed of light. In other words, light itself cannot escape a black hole. In other words, everything falls in, but nothing falls out. And then surrounding the black hole, there is a sphere called the event horizon. And the event horizon is the point of no return. If you fall through that imaginary sphere, you get sucked right into the black hole and you never come out again. And lastly, we have two types of black holes. Stellar black holes, that is old stars that peter out and collapse into a black hole. And galactic black holes, like at the center of the Milky Way galaxy itself, right in our own backyard. So once again, our special guest today is Dr. Fulvia Melia. And we are talking about one of the strangest objects in the universe, and that is the black hole. The first question for you is, how did you first get interested in physics and astronomy? Well, I actually grew up in Melbourne, and uh, I, I don't know if all of your listeners have had the opportunity of visiting the Southern Hemisphere, but looking up at the sky from the Southern Hemisphere, one gets a, a, quite a different view than, than from the Northern Hemisphere. The Milky Way, for example, is very easily seen, and it stretches from one horizon to the next, then it, it fills the cosmic vault. And when I was small, I remember almost every evening just going outdoors and, and just looking at the stars and the Milky Way for hours and hours and hours. And I would say that that's probably what started me off. Uh, with that, of course, comes the natural curiosity of how things work and what these objects are. And one is led, I think, in most cases to... Uh, a uh, study of physics, and, and that's what got me into physics and astronomy, I would say. And Arizona is one of the world's leading centers for astronomical research, I understand. So what is it like to be in Arizona versus being in New York City to be able to look up at the night sky and see the Milky Way and also to be at the very forefront of telescope technology? Well, that's the interesting comparison, of course, because even though um, I, I usually tell my friends, especially the ones overseas, even though we belong to the same country, the southwest of the United States is really very, very different from the northeast, as I think everybody uh, realizes. Here in Arizona, the skies are almost always clear. Um, it's not a coincidence that many of the national and now the international telescope facilities are being built here. Uh, we get very little cloud cover during the year, so going out in the evenings, whether using a telescope or not, um, is 
presents quite a glorious experience. It's, it's a wonderful opportunity um, to feel the, uh, the magnitude um, of the skies and, and the objects uh, there. And of course, for research, especially for the observers and people who build instruments eventually placed on the telescopes with which these observations are made, there's, there's very, there are very few places on the planet better than this to do um, studies such as this. The clarity of the skies and also the uh, access to objects, not only in the northern hemisphere, but those approaching um, what one would see from the southern hemisphere. Of course, Earth's rim prevents us from seeing all of the portion of the Milky Way that would be accessible from the south, but nonetheless, during um, a portion of the year, we can still see the center of the galaxy, for example, which is close to the southern horizon for us here in Arizona. But uh, other than the skies here, um, the only other place that would present a comparable opportunity for studying um, these objects would be from countries such as Chile, um, which, of course, is way down south. Um, so as far as we here in the United States are concerned, unless we want to travel to South America, this is probably the place to do this type of work. And also, tell us a little bit about how stars die and uh, the formation of black holes. Right. Well, this, of course, is... Um, uh, an ongoing investigation. We think we understand some pieces of the puzzle. Not everything is known. It, it's quite a long story. Uh, uh, black holes can actually form in several ways, and it's not clear that the supermassive objects that we see in the nuclei of galaxies form uh, through the stellar process of, of life and then uh, death. Uh, they may have formed in other ways, and we may come back to this in a few moments when we talk about the uh, the genesis of these objects early on after the Big Bang. But in terms of the smaller black holes, like the ones uh, like Cygnus X1, for example, these ob the objects that we think weigh perhaps uh, 10 to 20 times as much as the Sun, as far as these objects are concerned, most of them um, are produced uh, when a very massive star and by very massive would mean something, an object that weighs anywhere between 30 to 50 times the mass of the sun, uh, burns its nuclear fuel rather quickly, it turns out, because the more massive the object is, the faster uh, it burns the fuel, um, and then eventually loses that internal support that prevents it from collapsing to the middle. It's the heat generated from nuclear burning that uh, preserves the star during its the main part of its life, like the sun is now. And at the end, when that nuclear fuel is, is burned to heavier elements, such as carbon and eventually to iron, um, the heat generation stops and the material can't support itself anymore and collapses into the middle, at which point um, a supernova explosion ensues and the remnant, depending on how massive the original star was, can sometimes be a black hole with a mass somewhere between a couple of uh, solar masses and 10 to 20, as I said earlier. So the vast majority of black holes about which we know, um, and there are some billion of these in the galaxy, probably form in this way. But there is another class of objects, like the one at the center of our galaxy and the center of many other galaxies, such as the Andromeda galaxy, our sister galaxy. These objects um, have a mass anywhere between a million to several billion times the mass of the sun, 
And although some of them may have started as seeds from supernova explosions uh, a long, long time ago and eventually have grown to the point where they are now, it's not clear that all of them could have formed that way. And the reason I say that, and this would lead into another part of the story, um, the reason I say that is that we now have very, very strong evidence that at least some of these supermassive objects were formed only 700 million years after the Big Bang, much, much earlier than the formation of galaxies and much of the structure that we see in the universe today. So it's starting to look like there was some other mechanism, some other process that led to this early collapse and this this catastrophic creation of of, uh, very strong gravity surrounding these these objects, um, which probably also then acted as uh, nucleation sites that attracted other matter towards them. And that matter, uh, we think, in, in many cases, may have led to the formation of galaxies. So the odd thing now is that uh, we may actually owe our existence to the formation of these supermassive black holes because they may have been um, the seeds that created galaxies, which then, of course, created stars within them and planets and life and so on. So it's quite a long, complex story, and, and we don't know all the uh, the details yet, but some of the pieces of the puzzle are starting to emerge in that there, there definitely appear to be several classes of these, and one class having to do with the supermassive objects uh, somehow had a genesis much, much earlier than we thought before, and how they formed is not entirely clear yet. Well, I have a question that many young people ask about black holes. Uh, First of all, black holes suck in everything. Even light itself cannot escape. In some sense, they're the ultimate roach hotel. And the Hubble Space Telescope has photographed the black holes eating up whole star systems. So in other words, things check into a black hole, but nothing ever checks out. Well, then the question is, well, a black hole should be invisible. Even light itself cannot escape from a black hole. Therefore, a black hole should be invisible. And yet we have the Hubble Space Telescope taking photographs of perhaps hundreds of black holes in outer space. And so then the question is, how do you photograph something that is invisible? Right. This is, um, th- this is what's really generating much of the excitement these days with um, uh, theoretical astrophysicists and, of course, the physics community in general. Um, what telescopes that have been built up, up to this point have seen so far is not really the black hole itself, but what they see is light produced by matter falling into the black hole. Um, their resolution is not yet um, good enough for them to make an image of the black hole itself, the event horizon, which is the surface uh, beyond which nothing can escape, including light. So if we really could see the black hole itself, what we would see is a, is a dark shadow um, in front of a curtain of light. The curtain of light presumably would be produced by matter behind the black hole relative to us, and uh, the black hole would absorb all of the light produced behind it um, or redirect it away from our line of sight because gravity can, can uh, bend the path of light, and so we would see a dark shadow. That's what a black hole would look like if we had a camera uh, with such clarity, such spatial resolution that we could see detail down to that size. 
it does look like by the, the end of the decade we may have the capability of actually forming such an image. But for now, um, telescopes such as Hubble and Chandra have not been able to do that yet. So instead what they show us is images, uh, or what they produce is images of matter falling into the black hole from uh, larger distances, distances much further away than the event horizon itself. Um, both have, have done spectacularly in this regard, though. Uh, both Chandra, uh, the X-ray telescope, and, uh, and Hubble have uh, each produced a very deep image of certain patches of the sky. Um, uh, by deep, we mean that uh, there were patches in the sky, such as one in the constellation of Ursa Major, where there are very, very few objects um, within our own galaxy inside of that patch. And so it's like looking through um, uh, it's like looking through a relatively open window to much, much distances much further away than uh, objects within our galaxy. And what they were able to do by staring at these patches was to collect light from objects um, some 10 to 12 billion light years away. In other words, objects that uh, were producing this light um, only seven to eight, nine hundred million years after the Big Bang. And what they see when they look at these patches is um, very bright objects, either X-ray objects or uh, ultraviolet or uh, infrared objects in the case of Hubble, um, uh, objects that number as many as 500 within a region only the size of the full moon. So if you can imagine with your eye looking at a part of the sky uh, that has the size of the full moon, within such a region, these telescopes have, have been able to produce images of as many as 500 of these objects. And these objects are so far away, they're so bright, that the only way that they could produce this much light uh, is if they're black holes absorbing matter from their environment and converting gravitational and rest mass energy into, into light. So we believe that when we look at these patches, most of the objects that we see, most of the 500, um, must be supermassive black holes um, at that uh, distance in, in the universe. And what's interesting is that when one extrapolates over the whole sky, these numbers correspond to total numbers of some three to four hundred million such objects. And uh, we know that that's not all that's there because that's what we can count. That's what we can see. But some of these objects are probably also obscured by uh, dusty matter falling in towards them. And so it's not clear that we're seeing everything. So the best that we can say is that there must be at least 300 million of these supermassive black holes um, spread throughout the cosmos. Chandra, of course, is gone on and done even much better than that. Uh, it's allowed us to look at the supermassive black hole at the center of our own galaxy with even better clarity because it's much closer than the others. Um, it's only 25,000 light years away compared to the 12 billion light years of many of these other objects near uh, the beginning of, of the universe's life. And um, because this object at the center of our galaxy is so close, we've been able to study it with Chandra and, and now other instruments as well. The European Space Agency has its own X-ray telescope called XMM-Newton, which has done uh, similarly spectacular studies of these objects. Uh, but with Chandra, we've been able to, to see um, the X-rays produced 
by the black hole at the center of our galaxy with enough resolution that we can actually place the, the source, the location of the emitting plasma, within a region no bigger than the distance between the Earth and the Sun. Um, in addition, this object seems to explode roughly once a day, uh, producing a flare of X-rays. Um, the X-ray intensity during these events goes up by anywhere between 30 and 200 times what the intensity is um, during the quiescent state. And so for a couple of hours, the black hole at the center of our galaxy shines much, much brighter than it otherwise does. And what's intriguing now, and these are the latest results that haven't even been published in the literature, what's intriguing now is that there is very clear evidence that during these events, we can see uh, a periodic pulse. It's like the heartbeat of this object. There's a periodic pulse that occurs r roughly once every 20 minutes. Um, the natural interpretation for this, and, and again, it hasn't been published yet, so we have to look at this more carefully and make sure that we've ruled out all the other possibilities, but the natural interpretation is that what we're looking at is a phenomenon um, associated with uh, X-rays being produced in a region orbiting the black hole uh, within a distance only three to four times the size of the event horizon. So although we can't see uh, the event horizon just yet with Chandra or Hubble, um, nonetheless, we're seeing a phenomenon associated with a mission that's occurring only two to three times the size of the event horizon. Um, it's similar to what would happen if uh, you imagine putting a searchlight on a planet and being in its uh, focal uh, cone only when the searchlight is pointing towards you. And so you would see a pulse every time the planet goes around the sun, which would then lead to a, a periodicity or a period of one year in the case of the Earth, because that's how long it takes the Earth to go around the sun. So it's a similar phenomenon with the black hole at the galactic center. We see this pulsation roughly every 20 minutes. Um, and, and so we interpret that as, as being uh, uh, part of the plasma in orbit around the black hole, and the distance that corresponds to that period is, is about three times the size of the event horizon. So th these are some of the most exciting things that are happening now as we speak, and uh, the prospects will get only better as time passes and uh, Chandra and XMM continue to look and, and discover additional uh, activity and, and also with the next generation of telescopes in the pipeline now. Now, everyone asks the question, what happens if you fall into a black hole? No one's ever done that, of course. But could you explain some of the distortions, the distortions of space-time that occur if you were to fall into a black hole and someone were to observe you falling into a black hole from a distant planet? Right. And, and the the answer to that, of course, depends, not surprisingly, on how massive the black hole is. The, the, what one would see falling through the event horizon um, differs depending on how massive the black hole is compared to the, the mass of the object or the body falling in. Um, it turns out that for a massive object like the one at the galactic center, which we now understand uh, has uh, roughly three million solar masses worth of material contained within it, Falling through the event horizon of an object like that, um, a person would actually not see very much, <laughs> would, would actually not feel 
very strong effects on on his or her body. There would there would be other distortions to the light, but but that has we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, the point is that um, what happens physically to matter falling through the event horizon depends on how big the object falling in is compared to how big the event horizon is, and the size of the event horizon scales with the mass of the black hole. So, for example, um, if the sun were to shrink down to the size of a black hole, its event horizon would have a radius of only three kilometers, smaller than, than a city. Uh, whereas the black hole at the galactic center um, has uh, an event horizon with a radius about one-twentieth the distance between the Earth and the Sun, which is much, much bigger, of course, than, than uh, three kilometers. And it's the, it's the difference or the comparison between the size of the event horizon and the size of the object falling in that determines how much physical damage, if we can put it that way, is done to the object falling in. So because our human our body is so small compared to uh, the size of the event horizon of the black hole of the galactic center, we could fall right through and not feel uh, very much uh, uh, physical damage. We wouldn't get distorted or pulled or stretched or, or compressed. We would be able to pass through the event horizon and then other catastrophic uh, events would, would ensue, I'm sure, after that. But, but the process of falling in wouldn't do damage to us. On the other hand, if we were to fall through a smaller black hole, like the sun again, if the sun were to be compressed to uh, three kilometers size, then our body would get stretched at first, uh, pulled apart, and, and, and uh, catastrophic damage would follow. We would be disintegrated and, and only the atoms and molecules would... Uh, would uh, fall through. So the the physical damage is different depending on the size. And a good analogy would be um, compare standing on on the surface of the Earth, where the surface of the Earth, even though it's spherical, looks flat to us because it's so much bigger than us. And uh, and then standing on the dome of a cathedral, the dome is also is is quasi spherical at the top. But because the size of the sphere is much smaller compared to the Earth and much closer to our size, we feel the curvature um, <clears throat> of the dome much, much uh, more. And so that's the analogy. A small black hole, because of its greater curvature relative to us, would do more damage to our body falling through than, than a big black hole does. Now, that's as far as physical damage is concerned. But what we see, though, um, uh, would, uh, uh, would be less dependent on the size, and there would be significant distortion to the light path progressively as we get closer and closer to the event horizon. So um, light, because of gravitational redshift, meaning that um, photons uh, have progressively less and less energy, not speed, the speed of light is always the same, but the energy of the photons decreases relative to us at infinity as they get closer and closer uh, to the event horizon. Because of that decreasing energy, we have uh, greater and greater difficulty seeing the light. Eventually, as the, <clears throat> as the light reaches the event horizon, it's lost all of its energy relative to, to what we see, and so uh, we wouldn't be able to even detect the light anymore, even though it would still be coming uh, out uh, until it passes through the event horizon, and then beyond that, we wouldn't see it anymore. But as we fall in, because of this effect, we would tend to see primarily light concentrated um, closer and closer to the zenith angle, right above our head. So 
As we get closer to the event horizon, we see a progressively smaller cone of light from the rest of the universe until that point when we cross the event horizon itself, and only the light coming directly down would be uh, would be visible to us. And so, uh, we we would see these significant distortions because of the light bending and the gravitational redshift. And when we cross the event horizon, then of course nothing can go back out, so we can't communicate with the outside world. But what we would see is only light falling directly inwards towards us. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Our special guest today was Professor Fulvia Melia. He's a professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona in Tucson, and he's one of the world's leading authorities about black holes. So, in other words, black holes have fascinated the world of science for generations. And now we have photographs, photographs of these things, right? Lurking in our own backyard. And the next question is, what happens if you fall inside a black hole? Well, the short answer is we don't know. Um, on one hand, if you simply blindly follow Einstein's equations, you wind up in a parallel universe, like Alice in Alice in Wonderland. Other people say you just get crushed to death, and that's the end of that. Well, ultimately, it may require something called string theory to resolve the question. We have to combine quantum mechanics with relativity to get the final answer. Well, once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku for Exploration. Join us every week as we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. Good day. Good day.